0: Hey everybody, welcome back to Social Point. I'm Seamus McGinnis, back at you after a couple of weeks off again. It's been a busy month, uh, especially with the election and everything going on. I'm sure everybody's been sort of swamped with work. Obviously, COVID has picked up like crazy since the past couple months. We're into the second wave that everyone feared would come. And of course, Biden's election over Donald Trump, which Trump finally started the transition process a couple days ago. So it looks like there will be... a peaceful transition to power. But all that being said, I was going to talk to you guys this week about sort of a comprehensive healthcare care policy, uh, everything you need to know about it, why we need Medicare for all in the middle of a global pandemic, but there's just too much going on, especially with COVID. And so there's a couple stories I want to get to today. And the first of those is in Texas. You might've seen these videos of the North Texas Food Bank which distributed about 600,000 pounds of food for about 25,000 people for Thanksgiving and for just general food needs. Now, of course, that's a record amount of food that they're seeing uh, given out at these food banks. But not just that, 40% of the people who are coming into these food banks are coming for the very first time. And all this is, of course, in the midst of Texas becoming the first U.S. state to hit a million COVID cases, which is more than most countries around the world. Uh, And so, of course, as we've seen, if you've been following the news, COVID in general is hitting record numbers every day in the US. We're breaking world records in cases, tests, hospitalizations, and in deaths. And sadly, we're not trending in the right direction. And so, that is not just having a national impact in terms of, oh, concerns about the economy or concerns about jobs, which there have been massive job losses. But that doesn't just translate to the stock market. Of course, the stock market just hit 30,000 points for the first time. So if you ever have any sort of confusion over whether there's a, a connection between Wall Street and between what happens to people on the ground, let this dissolve any sort of myth you have about that. But what's way more important than that is what's happening at the community level. Of course, states tend to have different uh, restrictions on building a deficit or having debts within cities, municipalities and across the whole state. And so because the federal government has made it painfully, painfully obvious that they have no plans of actually providing aid to cities or to states to try and balance their budgets, every city is running up a massive de- deficit right now to try and deal with the pandemic. And they have been since March when the lockdowns started. And so, how are they going to pay for it? It's going to come in the form of budget cuts. But far more importantly than that even, is what's happening to the people on the ground. And one woman at this food bank said, I haven't been working since December. I can't find a job. They cut off my unemployment. It's a big deal. It's a real big deal. And I think that really captures what's happening to a lot of people. As we're heading into the 8th, ninth, 10th month, we're coming up on a year of the pandemic here, and while other countries around the world have started to beat it, or at least when they locked down, they didn't have everyone lose their jobs because they would nationalize the wages. We didn't do any of that. We gave a $1,200 payment, and that was about it for people who stayed working. Now, of course, if you lost your job, there was the unemployment benefits. We upped benefits by $600 a week. And that was hugely helpful. That was probably the most generous policy that we've seen from the US government since the New Deal. but. Over the past century, we've seen the total collapse of the New Deal coalition and thus the welfare state that it was built with, and uh, that has a whole lot of consequences right now when you hit some kind of catastrophe and you don't have any way of dealing with it. But other countries tried to nationalize their wages. So during the lockdown, they would pay um, somewhere from 75 to 85% of their wages would, would still be paid by the government, and then they'd leave it to the companies to pay the rest. And that was a lot more manageable for companies, of course. And if you're a small business, it means you don't go underwater. But a lot of companies and small businesses around towns here have started to just ignore any sort of stay-at-home orders or ignore orders to shut down and say they'll pay the fine. Understandably so, because they'll have to shut their doors permanently if they were to shut down again. And if the government's not going to help, how can we expect them to actually follow this? And so, to blame people individually, is just the wrong place to lay, lay the blame at. And so to try and lay the blame on small businesses or on business owners even or on workers is so obviously incorrect because anywhere else in the world there was a sort of collective decision that we're going to help each other out here. And I think this food bank situation is a good example of exactly how bad things are starting to get. Because now that we are eight to 10 months deep and it's continuing on, and people have lost their jobs months ago now, and a lot of those, I believe about three and a half million of them, have come out to now be permanent and not just furloughs and not just layoffs. Those permanent job losses have resulted in five million people losing their health care, which we'll talk about the impact of that next week. But also, very importantly, unemployment is starting to run out. It doesn't last forever. And a lot of the eviction uh, moratoriums are coming to an end. And I'll get to the evictions in a minute here. But what's important here is that we understand things are getting really, really bad. And the federal government is on vacation. The Senate called off, everyone's gone. And there's no help coming until at least January. And that's just absolutely appalling it's awful and and this should never be happening but we have to understand why it is but first let's look over to la because it, this is not just happening in texas la has started to have shutdowns they have another stay-at-home order in place so a lot of these people tried to shelter in place in these abandoned homes ones that were commandeered by cal which was a Uh, California highway project which took over a bunch of homes and then was abandoned as a project and so it left all these homes empty and unused and so a bunch of people who are housing insecure who don't have somewhere to stay said well we don't want to sleep on the street we have a family and so they moved into these empty homes because they're abandoned so when these families moved into these abandoned homes they actually did send letters notifying California governor Gavin Newsom of their intentions which was they needed somewhere to stay And, of course, those homes haven't been used in years. And so they tried to reclaim it, or they tried to move in just to have somewhere to stay. And what did Gavin Newsom do? Did he write letters back? Absolutely not. Of course not. Instead, on the night of Thanksgiving, a few hours before maybe you might get up to slow cook a turkey, uh, Gavin Newsom sent in 500 highway patrolmen to drag all of these families out of their homes, including minors. And it sure doesn't seem like the police were had having any interest in treating these people with any sort of dignity or respect. And the irony, or just the tragedy, of it being on Thanksgiving is cannot be lost on us. But in general, the fact that we're just okay with this happening in the middle of our society is just nuts. And, of course, a bunch of people, thankfully, showed the power of a community to come together and gathered around the police, and there was sort of a, a feeling that a riot could start because of the cruelty being carried out, and so they eventually ran the cops out of the neighborhood. But evictions are just getting started around the country. Uh, As you can see in this Bloomberg map, anywhere from 30 to 50% of people in almost every state in the nation are facing extremely or very likely uh, evictions in the next two months. Now, of course, we aren't in August, we aren't in March. We're headed into the middle of winter in the middle of the U.S., and 30 to 40 percent of the people across the whole country are looking at losing their homes. And the apocalyptic nature of that situation cannot be lost on us. And if there is not a national moratorium on evictions as there was earlier in the year, God knows what's going to happen to all these people. Now, in the middle of all this, there was a little bit of good news, which is that, of course, Joe Biden defeated Donald Trump in the 2020 general elections. But let's not get get too far ahead of ourselves here. As I said in the first episode of this show, let's not go back to sleep. And why should we not go back to sleep? It's pretty simple. The government corruption that people were so worried about under Trump, all of the nepotism, all of the basically policy for sale to China, to Saudi Arabia, to anyone willing to give Trump a hotel in their city after the fact, after his administration, I should say, none of those pay for play systems are going to stop. It's just that the other governors or the other governments are better at hiding it. And so people like Tony Blinken, who worked for private defense contractors over the past eight years, Uh, Before that, he was a Joe Biden advisor. And when he was an advisor, he, of course, advised Joe Biden to get into the Iraq War. And so, how does Biden reward him for such wonderful and, of course, totally not flawed advice? He made him the future Secretary of State. Take the number one issue in the Democratic primary for Democratic voters. And for young people out there, of course, this is pretty much the main thing that people care about at this point, which is climate change. Of course, we've seen fires in California. We've seen record hurricane seasons. And how does Joe Biden want to, you know, react to that? Well, it's looking more and more likely like Ernest Moniz, who is Joe Biden's close personal friend and was also the Department of Energy secretary under Obama, is going to take up his old role in the Department of Energy. And this is more problematic than you might think. You might not have heard the name before, but you've probably seen a picture of him. He became a bit of a meme a couple years ago. Of course, looking like you would expect somebody who runs the Department of Energy to look because he's a nuclear phys- physicist. But all jokes aside, he, what has he been doing for the last four years, you might ask? Not great things. He ended up working for Southern Company, which is a fossil fuel company. And did he just get paid in a wage? No, he made six figures and got paid in stock. Now, if he gets taken back to the Department of Energy, he'll keep doing what he did the whole time when he was with Obama which is help out fossil fuel companies. He was once an a ExxonMobil advisor, he worked with BP, and just generally he's been a lobbyist for fossil fuel companies for years. And so to expect him to somehow handle climate change and actually make the changes that we need is just completely blinking reality. But I would expect the Biden administration to do somewhat the same thing that someone like Andrew Cuomo has done with COVID. And when he got on his press conference last week, he said this. If you're socially distant and you wore a mask and you were smart, none of this would be a problem. It's all self-imposed. If you didn't eat the cheesecake, you wouldn't have a weight problem. I think that's a pretty common theme here. You see that with climate change. You see that with COVID. There's a, a heavy emphasis on blaming the individual. And that's sort of a favorite tactic of liberalism. We see the same thing happening when it comes to dealing with mental health struggles in the pandemic. We expect people to just do it themselves. That, oh, maybe just take more me time or find a way to get away. But it's not that simple because if you don't know if you're gonna be able to pay rent or you don't know if you're gonna lose your house next week, it's not as simple as saying, oh, I'll just work from the library today. And so we have to recognize the societal causes and the way that we need Structural change to deal with the issues that are facing individuals. It's not as simple as just having a plastic straw ban. It's dealing with the main outputters of emissions, which are fossil fuel companies. But that's not going to happen if you have an administration run by fossil fuel lobbyists. The same thing goes for Andrew Cuomo. It's absolutely insane to act like COVID is spreading because of people being gluttons because they eat too much cheesecake or they go into restaurants, it's that you forced people to go back to work without giving them any sort of aid. It's as simple as that. And it has to come back to these social issues and not just to blaming the individual. Because that's way too easy of an out and we cannot give them that. But I think this sort of gets at the struggle uh, that we're going to face over the next four years when it comes to politics, when it comes to government which is that I totally understand why people are cynical about government, why they think that regardless of who they vote for, it's going to look the same. Because in a lot of ways, for people's practical everyday life, sometimes it is exactly the same. Even the supposed heroes of the pandemic, like Newsom and like Cuomo, as you've seen, have just awful responses to it. And when it comes to really important issues to people, like healthcare or like climate, there's just going to be no serious change. And I understand And I don't want to discount the power of activism in the middle of all this. I would encourage everybody to start getting involved. Of course, when it comes to climate, the big victory of the Obama years was stopping the Keystone XL pipeline. But that's really just one small piece of a much larger scenario here that that needs way deeper change than just stopping one pipeline at a time. And so you might be able to push Biden, just as we pushed Obama, left on these little issues. Not little. but temporal, very specific uh, as to one pipeline or one company or one regulation. But when when it comes to changing their governing philosophy, when it comes to changing the way that they view society, we can't just do that by being in the streets. And in this way, the government's really insulated. And while it's not always a conscious choice to try and show you that you should be nihilistic or to show you that you should feel like you can't affect change, It tends to be the result. Think about something like the Kavanaugh appointment. What was the GOP able to do in the middle of credible, very, very credible rape allegations? They were able to just push him right on through. And after a massive surge of voters with the biggest turnout election ever and a pretty commanding lead by Biden, what does he do when he gets finally into office or becomes the president elect? He puts in a supporter of the Iraq war and he puts in fossil fuel execs to run his policies. The message, whether consciously chosen or not, is that there's nothing you can do about this. When it comes to something like foreign policy, and Biden is surrounding himself with a whole team of war hawks, which I will get to the dangers of that soon uh, in a future episode. But something like foreign policy is so deeply insulated because it's run through the president that there's really nothing we can do over the next four years to try and stop him. I mean, look at 15 years ago, we had millions of people in the street protesting the start of the Iraq War then, which the now Secretary of State supported, and that was not, not able to stop the war at all. So how are we supposed to also get millions of people in the street to try and stop a war hawk who supported it then from being in power now? It makes absolutely no sense. And so if you think that you're going to be able to push someone like Nancy Pelosi to the left, for example. I got news for you. She leaves her one little secluded home, takes a private car to a private runway, flies to DC, is driven right into the back door of the Capitol Hill, does the exact same to get back home and has no, absolutely no access to communities. These politicians are not forced to walk down Main Street of their town. Mitch McConnell, obviously, has been probably the savviest conservative politician of the last 50, if not 100 years. If you think that he's going to suddenly become a a climate activist, I, I got nothing for you. And this is not to say that we should be hopeless, but it's to recognize that the whole philosophy of trying to make incremental change from within the government that we already have and the same figures that have been around for 40, 50, 60 years now nothing's going to change that deeply. And so we have to start demanding larger changes. And as we head into the midterms and as we head into 2024, the focus has to be on finding local politicians who are progressive. That's very important, progressive, who support the Green New Deal, who support Medicare for All, and start to build a a set of base communities, essentially, that will build a grassroots movement. And once we have that infrastructure in place, we can start to actually make the changes that we need to see that will be sufficient to, for example, save the planet. I think this also gets at something really important, which is that even if we were to somehow, by some miracle, push Biden to, I don't know, push a couple billion dollars in climate spending, which would, again, not be enough, but it would be something, or something small like cutting fossil fuel subsidies by 20 or 30%, that's probably doable if we pushed hard enough. Those things are obviously not enough, but we also can't change the way that someone like Joe Biden or someone like Mitch McConnell or someone like Nancy Pelosi views society as a whole. And this gets back to what you were seeing earlier with the eviction crisis. We think of those people as just needing our charity. We tell people, oh, you should be, you know, donating to food banks, donate to homeless shelters. And I'm not saying you shouldn't do that. I'm saying that it shouldn't be necessary in the first place. Because we built a society that's largely punitive. If you make a mistake, or even if you do nothing wrong, but you just have a bad break, it continues to punish you. If you can't make rent, if you try to get your family inside somewhere because there's a shelter in place order, what's the governor gonna do? Is he gonna understand that it isn't some moral failing? You didn't just not work hard enough to, to end up where you're at? No, they're gonna send in the cops and they're gonna kick you back out onto the street and i think that's a pretty common recognition of there's a divide in the way that we view society you see especially a lot of conservatives but just in general people being all about the hustle about just needing to work hard enough and you'll definitely get where you need to go and this is not to say that any sort of left politics should avoid the idea of having a a very stringent work ethic it's more that We need to combine that with a societal kindness that working hard isn't always enough. There are moms working three jobs just to support their kids. We can't possibly accuse them of not working hard enough, and they're the ones who need the food banks on top of that. But we need to start recognizing that society has to be built on solidarity, not through just aid and charity, but through having those be unnecessary. That we actually make everyone the agent of their own ability, not in the liberal sense of, oh, you just got to work hard to achieve your dreams, but that we're going to create a system that's kind, that allows your life to go through hardships without being punished for doing nothing wrong in the first place, because struggles or being permanently relegated to the working class is not some moral failing on any individual's part. It is a systematic and systemic disease that we are facing. And so we have to start trying to find ways to look at society differently. But even if you already view it that way, even though 80% of people in some capacity support a single payer or a universal health care program, that doesn't matter because the people in power don't match the will of the people. This is not a democracy of the many, it's a oligarchy of the few. And so our project over the next four years, as we face a Biden administration that will likely try to work with Mitch McConnell on austerity programs and have plenty of fossil fuel execs run their programs, We have to battle back by trying to make this a democracy of the people, because that's what this is all about. And so the government should not just be some arm of corruption. It should be an arm of the will of the people. And if we want Medicare for all, if we want a Green New Deal, that should be what's happening. And so we have to try and build grassroots movements that actually affect that kind of change. That's what I hope to see out of the next four years, and that's what I hope people start to recognize is the main divide in our politics today. Not between Democrat and Republican, but between a ruling class and the rest of us that need to find new ways to fight back. You
1: refuse to move forward until you connect with the best of what came before. It could be grandmama or granddaddy, it could be your father or uncle, it could be your coach, it could be your jazz teacher. Somebody you know who enabled you. So you already shatter all of these American myths about being self-made. No such thing as being self-made. Because the condition of truth is always to allow suffering to speak. And when you have deodorized discourses, what do you get? Sanitized and sterilized discussions that don't want to deal with the funk of the situation. And we all emerge in our mama's funk, in the womb. It's bloody down there, it's stinky down there, but that's where the love is. And part of the problem in America, is America has been in denial of the funk, of its own stuff. Indigenous peoples, empty land, quit lying. The signs, no people here, just buffaloes and Indians, white supremacy at work, never believe the lie that slavery is the original sin of America. Slavery was the second one. It was the treatment of our precious and our priceless indigenous brothers and sisters. They don't have to be in a room for us to be in solidarity with their suffering, with their plight and their predicament. And there's no PC chit-chat that we're talking about. These are human beings made in the image of God. We can't deny what they have been going through since 1492. Standing Rock this past year was significant in that regard. Because it reminds the nation, all of us no matter what color, of the fundamental truth of what went into the making of this particular social experiment condition of truth is to allow suffering to speak.